you don't need to diagnose your partner. Don't get hung up on that. I mean, it's helpful to educate yourself, but what you need to know is what am I experiencing in this relationship? And if you have cognitive dissonance, that is your signal right there that you need to get out. Midlife Ladies. This is the Dear Midlife Podcast. Unapologetic girl talk that will help you remember who you are and figure out who in the hell you want to become. I'm Shelby Bybee, karaoke party queen, single mom, and an extrovert to a fault. And I'm Trinity Greenfield, a wild-haired woman full of sass, sparkle, and a heavy dose of black girl magic. So grab a glass and let's dive into the messy middle. Our guest on the show today is Shelly Pumphrey. Shelly is a licensed professional counselor, therapist, author, and relationship coach with almost 30 years of clinical experience. She specializes in working with trauma, adult attachment, narcissistic abuse, and pathological love relationships, which is the topic of our conversation today. And she's the author of Insight is 2020, How to Trust Yourself to Protect Yourself from Narcissistic Abuse and Toxic Relationships. This topic, I cannot tell you how important it is to me and to so many women out there. And I know because I speak from personal experience, I was in a relationship with someone who I've, I've come to realize was known as a covert narcissist and was in this abusive relationship for 16 years. And girl, I stayed because for much of the time, I didn't even understand or realize what I was experiencing was a form of narcissistic abuse. Shelly helps our listener out there understand that this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde behavior that I experienced with my ex and maybe many of you out there are also experiencing creates what is known as cognitive dissonance that made it so difficult for me to grasp the reality of the abuse I was facing. As the abuse escalated, I adapted my behavior to accommodate my abuser. And in that space, I completely lost myself. You'll also hear in this episode, Trinity have a completely unimaginable personal revelation. I expect that you're going to have your own personal understanding and revelation as you listen to this podcast. Shelley believes that the mind, body, and spirit need to be nurtured throughout your healing journey. And she is here to educate us about toxic relationships so that you can start to heal, so that you can begin your own healing journey. And man, Did she impart some amazing wisdom on our show today? So I want you to listen to this podcast and I want you to leave us a review with the revelations that you had. And I want you to know that you are not alone. Let's welcome to the podcast our guest, Shelly Pumphrey. Welcome to our podcast today, Shelly Pumphrey, who is our new best friend, who is going to be sharing with us her expertise on so much goodness. 
Welcome, Shelly. We're so hey, happy best friends. Hey, hey. <laughs> Hi, new best friends. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're so excited to have you. And today our topic is about this theme of narcissistic abuse and healing from the trauma of narcissistic abuse. And prior to jumping onto this podcast, I think I was able to share with you that I have also previously been in a relationship with someone that I have diagnosed as a covert narcissist. I think that there are very big distinctions. And the reason that I want to specify that he was a covert narcissist was because some of those, I guess, if you want to call them symptoms were very subtle. There was Mm. some manipulation. There was discounting of my feelings there was this self-centeredness. I was always meant to focus in on him. He did a lot of controlling of his image and image management. And those were sort of the, the things that I started to recognize as I started speaking with some more of my friends that were really triggers to me that, oh man, maybe this is who I'm dealing with here. And that sort of diagnosis was really sort of powerful to me because it helped me to better understand how to process through, um, manage my relationship with this individual. But I, I want to get your expert opinion on what is the definition of narcissism and what are the flags that our audience members out there might be looking for so that they can be in a position of empowerment when navigating these types of relationships. Yeah. So, um, so much to unpack there. And I love that you brought up the covert narcissism piece because this, I've also had a personal experience as a therapist who's worked with this for, I mean, really 30 years of experience and found myself with a covert narcissist and didn't see it. That's just how subtle and um, manipulative these relationships can be. So, So just to maybe give kind of a general overview of narcissism, one thing that I first want to say is I'm going to talk about narcissism, but I want to talk about a bigger definition that we call pathological love relationships. And the reason for that is because basically a pathological love relationship is a relationship with a partner who has one of the cluster B, we call it cluster B personality disorders. And in particular, narcissism, antisocial personality, you could also have borderline personality in there too, but in particular, it's the narcissism and antisocial. And then we also have psychopathy, which is not technically a personality disorder, but is just as dangerous. And you can find yourself in a relationship with somebody who's a psychopath. So let me just give the briefest rundown of what this actually means. I like to kind of think of narcissism a little bit on a spectrum. Like we all have self-centered qualities. We all have a little bit of ego, well, or a lot of ego. And so that's normal for us to have some of that, but you can sway over into this area of having an actual personality disorder where Mm. you don't have empathy. Like you could have an ego and have empathy over here in the normative range, but over here you're lacking empathy. It's all about you, you know, well, let's say an overt narcissist generally feels superior to other people and they're not afraid to make that known even, you know, they might put people down and outright say, I'm better than you. They 
can often be very manipulative to get their way. They often lack empathy or have no empathy. They can feel very jealous of other people, very competitive. (laughs) There's a lot of dynamics that go into a relationship with a narcissist where they do a lot of gaslighting, where they kind of make you lose your sense of reality, where you catch them red-handed with something and say, hey, you... I just saw you kissing that other woman. And they're like, I think you need to go back to your therapist. I don't know what you're talking about. That didn't just happen, even though you saw it with your own eyes. So there's things like that that make up this narcissism piece. It's like they're better than everybody else. They don't realize that other people have a problem with that. They don't realize that that's odd or not how everybody else thinks. And that's part of the problem with narcissists is mm-hmm. they don't have the ability to self-reflect and see that their mm. their stuff is an issue for other people. So that's kind of this overt narcissist. They kind of wear the narcissism on their sleeve. But the covert narcissist is super hard to spot sometimes. And even the o- overt one is hard to spot sometimes. The covert narcissist can often come off as very sensitive. They might even seem like they feel shame or embarrassment. Like they can, they seem like they're self-reflecting. And there's some different variations of it, but they can be very passive aggressive, very controlling. They may often feel like they're jealous or envious of other people, but they may not always share that, but it might come out in passive aggressive comments. You know, the pet, the covert narcissist I was with was one of the kindest looking people on the surface that I've known. Everybody loved him. I don't think most people would even believe what I saw behind closed doors, you know, and that might've been your experience too, Shelby, like often people, and even with some overt narcissists that aren't too over the top, they are often very charismatic, very charming and have seen like loving them. Right. Yeah. They seem like Mr. Or I, you know, I always think of it as a man because, you know, I'm a woman but I'm sure that there are female um, narcissists out there as well. But I, I've always seen like, these are the big, the big personalities, the charismatic folks that are just, everyone's drawn to them, which makes it so much easier for them to stay steeped in their bullshit because Mm -hmm. they can point at you. And of course, everybody's going to think you're the crazy one because they're, they're the good guy. Right. Exactly. That's part of it too, right? Shelly, if I'm not mistaken, is the idea of image management. So my ex-husband was in public relations. So his Mm. whole persona was built around his ability to create a perception for those around him of what he wanted to be perceived as. And I've just, I'm reflecting back on a particular day and time that really clear, clearly, in my opinion, articulates all of the descriptions that you've just provided us. And just a quick run through the day, we had two small children. And of course, yes, my ex-husband was larger than life personality. Everybody loved him. We had a very, very busy day that day, starting with some sort of school event. Then we were running late from the school event to go to a birthday party for my ex-husband's colleague and best friend. And then we got to the birthday party late, frazzled. And of course I had gone to get the birthday present and get the all the things ready for the birthday party. And then we went directly from the birthday party on to my daughter's dance recital. So all the costumes, all the makeup, all the hair things, the curling irons, the hair dryer, the hairspray, the, all the things that you needed to go 
from one event to the next event to the next event in this very, very full day. We got finished with the dance recital and we're outside taking photographs. And my ex-husband threw the largest temper tantrum I've ever seen in my entire life. He, I couldn't take the picture right. He grabbed my phone. He was yelling at me. He was yelling at the kids in front of this audience of people. And as the conversation progressed, the reason why he was so upset was because he had recently lost like 40 pounds and the attention was not on him. The attention Ugh. was on my child who had just done her very first dance recital. And yeah. he was angry because I was not intuitive enough because I had camera in hand to say, sweetheart, you're looking amazing today. We're all oh dressed God. up. You've lost 40 pounds. Why don't you stand over there and let me take a picture of you? And he was upset at me because I had not intuited he would also like to be the center of attention and that he had done all of this work and that I should recognize and acknowledge that mm. within the frame of this very, very yes. busy day. And so I just feel like that articulates this idea of this self-centeredness, this, you know, sort of passive aggressive behavior, um, this, this vibe for attention that he had. It was just so interesting mm -hmm. listening to what it was that you were saying and the definition of, of these types of characters and that all of those, you know, sort of characteristics were exhibited in that singular day for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's such a good example of it. And you bring up two other parts that are really key in, in narcissism. And one is that they really require excessive admiration. And the wow. grandiose narcissist or overt narcissist can be more upfront about that. But the, the covert narcissist might do it more subtly you know, or pout, you know, they're, they're great at pouting, you know, yes. if they don't get their way, you know, maybe he didn't, it wouldn't have said, I need you to focus on me in this picture, but they're going to pout all day and you won't know what they're even pouting about. They make you um, walk on eggshells. Right. Yeah. You're walking on eggshells yeah. around them because they have shifted all the energy in the room. They're not going to talk about it, Yep. but they have eaten all of the energy that's in the room and you feel their evil little space and you have to walk on eggshells until they decide they're going to stop punishing you. Right. With their yeah. silence or their, you know, just emotional yeah. withdrawal. Yeah. And they're yeah. also very hypersensitive to any perceived or real criticism, you mm -hmm. know, and that's like, you could, you could say, well, the sky's uh, kind of a turquoise -ish blue today. And they're like, no, it's ocean blue. And you're like, no, I think it's turquoise blue. And that could set them off because you're disagreeing with their, you know, whatever they say should be. Wow. Right. But I, I wanted to kind of also bring in this other part of how these just personality disorders can overlap a bit. There's so much to cover in this, so I want to kind of just make sure we get this part in. So that's narcissism that there's also the antisocial personality and somebody with that is, you may have these narcissistic traits that overlap into it, but usually antisocial is that um, they have usually will have a criminal past or criminal activities. If they haven't been caught yet, they don't have a conscience. They don't understand right and wrong. Like rules mm. are applied to everybody else, but not to them. So you often see a lot of, 
criminal behaviors or lying, cheating. You know, you could have a white collar CEO that's doing, you know, stealing money from the company and is super charismatic and they're actually antisocial and narcissistic. Um, so that's kind of that part. And then psychopathy is a whole different kind of part of this that we don't loop into personality disorders, but psychopathy is something we believe is genetic. And these are people that have literally no conscience at all. So you can add in these pieces of antisocial uh, narcissism even, but they are like cold hearted, you know, this is like the serial killers of the world. And um, yeah, very scary. Um, yeah, I know that gave me the chills. I know it did. I was like, oh, yeah. So you can have people that have different overlapping traits and I won't spend time going into the other couple of personality disorders because really that narcissism and antisocial are two of the biggest ones that lead to the most harm. That us regular folk run into. Right. (laughs) Well, I would love to know what breeds these type of personality disorders. Is it something that they're born with? Is it something that has been nurtured throughout their lives what what creates a narcissist or someone with one of these types of personality disorders Mm. well this is such an important question and an important answer for people to understand especially if you're in a relationship with someone like this and hoping they'll change and a lot of therapists will pick a bone with me over this but the research shows that more than likely this was created by a genetic or some kind of biological influence. And really we look at personality in general as being something that's kind of almost hardwired into us. And then our environment can influence things. Like we could have trauma, we could have, you know, growing up in poverty or, you know, different Mm. things like that that might change or influence the personality. But our personalities do remain fairly stable over time. And so when we look at, personality in general, we're going to talk about the two sides here um, of survivors' personalities. And the now right now we're talking about personality disorders. So when we think of a personality disorder, it's important to know, A, it's likely genetic and or inherited in some way. And therefore, we don't, at this time, we don't have a way to cure that. Mm. We might be able to treat and manage some of it. But Psychopath, no. Antisocial, pretty often you're you might learn some management stuff with them, but they don't have any, they don't see that anything's wrong at all. So mm. there's no motivation to change. Narcissists have a bit of that as well. So that part you have to understand personality is pervasive. It it is like all it influences every aspect of your life, your relationships, how you see the world, how you do the world, everything. And so a personality disorder is extremely hard to change if at all possible. Important for people to know that. Yeah. Uh, so are we just realizing more and more about narcissistic people, tendencies, behaviors, whatever, or have they always been around it just seems like it's in the forefront now 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 everybody's a narcissist and everybody has adhd and everybody has a peanut allergy right i mean everybody's got one of the three totally what is this about is why why does it seem like there's so many are there really more or are we just 
realizing it and we've put a label on it now. So now it's become um, more of our uh, center of our, our conversations. Yeah, there's conflicting research about whether or not there's more narcissism. Um, it's kind of a half and half answer for that. But my belief is that it's social media and mm. internet that has made it more of a thing, just like anything else that becomes a thing, you know, a TikTok challenge or everybody has a peanut allergy or whatever. Right. So it's, it's increased awareness. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say my experience was with a certain president that we had many people who had been dealing with narcissistic people in their lives started to make connections and read mm. about it more. I, I saw mm-hmm. a huge uptick in people having mm. more awareness because that was being talked about a lot in the media. Mm. So I think there were some factors like that. But the the thing is, is that the research, the very particular research about this even though it's been going on for a good 30 years or so with um, a woman named Sandra Brown, um, it's not fully out there. And we're working with outdated models that we've tried to fit into, you know, this codependency model or domestic violence model. And it isn't the, the field, the mental health field has not been fully trained or nor have we even done enough research to really Mm -hmm. understand this, but it's, starting to become more prevalent and aware out there. I have learned recently that attempting to go to like marriage counseling or therapy with someone who has one of these personality disorders is very traumatic and difficult for the victim. And what I personally experienced is that each one of those instances when we went to therapy or counseling was fruitless because it was my problem. It was not his problem. And whenever we went and I would try and articulate or communicate the impact that his behavior had on me, then he would deny it. He would gaslight me and say, oh, well, you're making this up. He would discount my feelings and say, oh, well, you're just being overdramatic or oversensitive about what really happened in that circumstance. And the therapist or the counselor in that particular situation didn't really know how to handle that, didn't know how to truly unearth and uncover what was really happening in the relationship because it was essentially his word against my word Mm -hmm. and they were not well-trained enough to really uncover that and help me to navigate that. And so ultimately what happened on the four or five occasions that we attempted to go to counseling is that it ended just like that. We we walked out of that counseling room after the first or second session and he would tell me what a bitch I was and how I made him out to be an asshole, that he wasn't really, that he's the best husband ever and he's the best father and he's so engaged and that I had the problem. And then I would question myself. He would stop going to counseling because it was not his problem. It was my problem and I would keep going but mm-hmm. never really could quite get any sort of resolution because there were, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me mm-hmm. and what I was doing. And so I think it is the cycle. So we've already talked about these individuals not being able to be changed or healed because there's no incentive. If they don't understand that they have a problem, they there is no incentive to change because there's nothing wrong with them in their own perspective or eyes. 
But what is it about those of us that are attracted to these types of characters? Because I felt like there was something in me that was drawn to this type of charisma that he had. What makes us women vulnerable to finding ourselves in these types of relationships? Yeah, this is the part that I, that is so important for people to understand. And this, this is also the thing that I think has been the most under, misunderstood by therapists and people out there who are blogging or doing social media about all this. So typically we have had this idea that you must be codependent. You must have no boundaries. You must have low self-esteem or have childhood trauma. And I mean, how else could you be with some abusive partner? Right. I mean, would you both agree that's kind of like this stereotypical idea? Conception for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you shouldn't have worn such a short dress and then you wouldn't have been raped. Exactly. Right. Right. Always us. (laughs) Yeah. And I know I just became friends with you, but neither one of you strike me as these wet noodle women who don't (laughs) boundaries. No. And that's not at all. So confusing is because I feel like, yeah, both of us are strong in character. We've got our stuff together. So what is it, you know, that women seem drawn to this type of character? Yes. So what research has found, and this was done by Sandra Brown, um, a study with Purdue University as well, and the Institute for Relational Harm Reduction. And what they found was that, I mean, they, they did a huge study of women survivors, so it only, this only applies to women, but 63% of the women in this study had certain personality traits that made them vulnerable to this. But what they did not have was traits of codependency, childhood trauma, or high what we call ACE scores. And I won't go into that. Essentially what that means, there's a gigantic study done by the Kaiser Foundation that looked at all the bad things that could happen to you as a kid. Mm -hmm. And it can predict stressors or things you're going to experience as an adult. So these women, the majority of them did not have any of that. They were Mm. high functioning they had healthy self-esteem. They had, you know, they were, they had their lives together prior to the relationship. Mm-hmm. 37% of the women did have quote unquote codependent traits, trauma, or high ACE scores. And the thing is, is those are the people because they've had trauma. Those are the ones that therapists are usually seeing more of in therapy. So I think there's been this kind of assumption that that must be the person that ends up in these relationships. But what happens is the 63% have, there's three certain personality traits that they score high in. And the top two are what we call agreeableness and conscientiousness. Now, these, just like we talked about the narcissist in the beginning with the personality disorder and how personality is very kind of hardwired into us. Well, it's the same for this. So agreeableness is the trait that we like to say gets you into these relationships. So Mm, an agreeable mm. person, and you can both let me know if this sounds like it might Mm -hmm. be you. Um, Agreeable, nice, don't set great boundaries because they're trying to make everybody happy. They can be people pleasers. They're flexible. They're super forgiving. They have a ton of empathy and compassion. And, And the rest of the world, you're like the nicest, most easygoing person. And people generally like you when you're agreeable. 
100%. And it's a great trait, right? But what happens is, let's say you're with one of these partners. You forgive them a million times. You can say, oh, he had a bad childhood. I mean, he's just acting from his trauma. You know, I just, and you just have the biggest heart. You can just be flexible. You put up with a ton of crap. Like that's the agreeable part of you that gets you involved with them. Yes. And by the way, these relationships don't happen by accident. And this is always kind of scary for people to hear, but they are, they are vetting you from the beginning. And you think it's not on purpose. It is anybody that has any education in psychopathology understands this, but most of us, especially nice people like us who don't do that kind of stuff, don't realize that from the very beginning, they were testing you to see how nice you were going to be. Was there, you know, was she going through something hard at the moment that I could like play on her empathy? You know, like Mm -hmm. it was calculated from the beginning. And so here you are being this nice, forgiving, easygoing person. And they're like, oh, perfect. Just what I need. And then the conscientiousness factor comes in. And this is the trait that we say keeps you in the relationship because people that are conscientious are super goal-directed, often kind of type A, like Mm. you're all about loyalty and integrity and you stick to your values and you get shit done and you have loyalty to the relationship. You know, I'm not going to throw in the towel on this. I'm going to go to therapy. We're going to work this out, you know, or I, I did my vows and I live by my vows. I'm not that kind of person that just gives up on somebody. Right. So that can get you stuck. So I am having like a moment with myself over here because, and and I'm just going to put this out there. Haven't really talked about this. I don't even know Shelby if I've talked with you about this. So after my divorce, very shortly after my divorce, I met and fell in love with a man who was married. But what was the narrative? I'm getting divorced. We'll be divorced by here. We'll be divorced by here. Oh, we have to unwind all the money. We'll be divorced by here, by here, by here. And everything that you are saying from obviously the gaslighting to Anytime something went wrong, it was always me. It was if I would bring up, you know, gosh, I can't believe that this is still going on. Why are you stringing me along like this? Well, of course it was me. It was something I was doing, right? And it went on and on and on for three years. And such an incredibly painful, painful thing, even to this day, he will still reach out and say he's getting divorced. Um, wow. It, it just everything that you were saying, God, I wish I could articulate this as well as I am feeling it. Um, mm-hmm. This is like such an aha moment that he mm-hmm. is actually, from what you've described, not even a covert narcissist, 100% an overt narcissist. Mm -hmm. And I was sucked into the melodramatic play of his Mm -hmm. life. So it makes sense coming from my marriage where I think he was more, I would say he had narcissistic tendencies. I don't know if that's a thing. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah. But I would, I would definitely say he had narcissistic tendencies and I am like this huge fixer. Like I want to fix your problems, whatever it is. And you know, this is, this is my specialty in life, whether you are a friend, a romantic partner, um, a spouse, a child, uh, the dog on the corner, who's about to run across the street, I'm fixing it, all of the things. So going back to this, this um, man post-divorce, he, it has been a, a very tight web I feel like that he spun around Mm me, which is very specific to many of the things that you talked about. Mm -hmm. How do we, as women, we get into these relationships. I think we start at some point to realize like, oh, there's something going on here. We may not label it. We may not diagnose it, but we, I I do believe our, our gut, our emotions tell us like, girl, you need to get your shit together. This dude is off. Something is off with this Mm -hmm. fella, right? How do we start to recognize and then unwind? And, And maybe it's my real first question is, why do we stay in this toxic relationship as Mm -hmm. long as we do? Even if we haven't labeled him or her narcissist, we know something's wrong. We know it's toxic. Why do we stay as long as we stay? Right. Well, I'm going to give you this, a very simple answer, and then I'll give you a little bit of a longer answer. But, you know, first I will say, I wrote a whole book on this. My book is all about listening to our internal red flags. Mm-hmm. So there's like the external red flags of, oh, he just lied to me or he cheated on me. Again, you know, it's all again, about what again. they're doing. But I, I like to say, you need to listen to your body, your yes. intuition, you know, mm. We have to learn to listen to it, but there's one gigantic red flag that you will have in a relationship with one of these partners, and it's something called cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And just the general definition is when you you have two truths in your head, but you have to choose one or the other. And like a great example is about smoking, you know, like you you know that smoking can kill you and you love smoking. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to deny the part about smoking can kill me. And I'm going to have, I'm only going to focus on things that help me continue to smoke. Like I love it. I'll stop someday. It's not that bad. They're probably over-exaggerating. And it's the anxiety of knowing that you have these two competing beliefs in your mind. Yes. So what happens in these relationships is inevitably you will start to see a Jekyll and Hyde personality appear. Yes. Yes. So in the beginning, so true. In the beginning, they start off as prince or princess charming, like they can do no wrong, and you think you have met your soulmate. And there are lots of ways that they do this to you. Yeah. Um. And then at some point, you start to see the personality flip the other side, and it Mm -hmm. might be little things here and there, or it might be a stunning moment where you're like, "Oh my." God, where did that yep. come from? Yep. So as soon as you start to see the Jekyll and Hyde, we like to say the mask starts to slip. You then start to go into cognitive dissonance about your partner. So is he a good person or a bad person? Mm-hmm. Is he honest or is he a liar? Is this my soulmate or is this my terrorist? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You, so your brain can't decide and you will start looping about what it is. 
So you start on the partner and then you start getting cognitive dissonance about the relationship. So is this my soulmate relationship and, and I want to marry this person or is this an abusive mm. relationship? And then the third phase is cognitive dissonance about yourself. And this is where it really plays into people who are conscientious because you have a lot of high ideals about yourself. Like, you know, like for me, I was like, I would never be in an abusive relationship. I would never let somebody treat me like that. I spent my whole career helping women survive that. And here I was, quote unquote, allowing somebody to abuse me every single day. And the shame that you start to feel, the embarrassment, and just, you know, have this self-loathing of like, how can I be this person? So you don't need to diagnose your partner. Don't get hung up on that. I mean, it's helpful to educate yourself. But what you need to know is what am I experiencing in this relationship? And if you have cognitive dissonance, that is your signal right there that you need to get out. So this is amazing to me. I was so proud of myself for surviving what I had survived in my marriage and breaking free from that to find myself trapped in a very similar space that has now become the biggest shame of my life. I look yeah. at it and I'm, I'm just, I'm so, 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 so very ashamed. And um, to have not like understood and been like, bitch, what the fuck? Wake up. He's never getting divorced. Are you kidding me? He's such a liar, liar, pants on fire. And, and to not have like broken free from that earlier. And then Shelby, I honestly think, and you know, uh, listeners out there, you've heard me talk about our, our dating foils and follies and, you know, fuck ups all of the time. But I think there's this piece of me that is tied to this shame of this particular scenario. And, and now I'm holding on to that shame so deeply that it that is what is creating this push me, pull you type of scenario in my dating life. And I don't, I haven't created space. I haven't opened my heart back up again. And it's been really difficult because I have not let go of this because he's totally mind fucked me. And, Mm -hmm. um, but I allowed it. I will let you all know that. So, um, you can't, you can't, you can't take responsibility for his behavior. Yeah. Right. That's hard for me. Easy not to know. I was in the same situation for 16 years. Mm. But I, I think to Shelly's point, it's easy because you are so giving. You were in it to win it. You had, you have hope that this is, is a one-time situation and then it happens again. And then you're yeah. like, no, it's in the cognitive dissonance is real. Like you are like, there is no possible way. This charismatic, amazing man that's exactly. involved with my kid's life is, is, throwing me up against a wall right now. This is not mm. happening. Oh, and Trinity, thank you so much for being willing and yeah. vulnerable to share that. I just want to acknowledge that. And I think this is the question. How do you heal? How yes. do you heal from these deep traumas, the shame of yeah. being so naive to stay in this space? So what, what can we do to heal from that? Yeah. First of all, I just, I do want to acknowledge both of you for sharing so vulnerably, you know, what's happened to you and let you know that everybody that's been in a relationship like this struggles with these kinds of feelings, you know, the shame and the confusion. And what you need to, first of all, know is it's not your fault. 
you were manipulated and abused and the psychological and emotional abuse of these relationships is, I mean, you, you could be unpacking this for decades yes. as you, as you heal the layers. I mean, I, yeah, it never ends. Well, it can end, but it, it's a lot. So just, I want you just to hear that. And what I'm going to say about healing is that it is so important to work with a therapist who knows how to work with this. And I don't mean a therapist who's like, yeah, I work with narcissistic abuse, but you really need to vet them here at the Institute for Relational Harm and Sandra Brown. We're, she's putting the finishing touches on a therapist training and certification for working with pathological love relationships. Mm. And that will be released here in the next few months. And so we are starting to get the word out about this to therapists. Ideally, finding a therapist, a trauma therapist, who is familiar with Sandra Brown's work. And I, she doesn't pay me to say this, but she is the, <laughs> the head researcher in this and her work, it is the way of the future in this. If you can't find somebody who understands her work, find a trauma therapist who at least has some degree of experience with narcissistic abuse. There are also Sandra Brown's book, my book, um, Sandra has several books, but you know, there's a lot of things that you can follow on the internet. I always just want to send out love to the people we call survivors turned experts. There are a lot of coaches and bloggers out there who have been through this and who are trying to help other people heal. And some of their stuff is amazing, but a lot of it is the same old information that's getting regurgitated from one person to another without actually being fully trauma informed and trained in this. So just be cautious of what you're taking in or people that are saying you're codependent and Mm -hmm. um, not having any idea of the extreme trauma that you actually experience in these relationships. And I can't just throw a crystal on my chakra and call it a day, huh? No. Sorry, girlfriend. (laughs) A little more work. I tried that. It doesn't work. (laughs) I do want to pause though for a moment, Shelly. And I know that you've written a book that is called Inside is 2020, how to trust yourself to protect yourself from narcissistic abuse and toxic relationships. Mm-hmm. So that for those women out there, I, I guess that are wondering if they've been in a toxic relationship, if they are having the same questions that Trinity and I are having, that that can be a resource for them. Yes. So I just yes. want to put that it, out there as well. Definitely helps you identify the red flags. And like I said, it's like, Okay, there's some education about what to look for in a pathological partner, but the the majority of it is what am I experiencing that would alert me to the fact that I'm being abused or in a pathological relationship. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. And trusting your insights, trusting yes. that thing inside of you. I felt yeah. it. I felt it as you know as we continue yep. down the path. Yeah. 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 A lot of us know from the beginning but the cognitive dissonance overrules our intuition. Mm -hmm. So if you consider yourself a very intuitive person, just know that it is hard to trust that when you're being love bombed, you're being manipulated Mm -hmm. and abused. Mm. So, but in retrospect, I could always look back and see the red flags from the beginning, but I wasn't trusting them or that it was like, oh, but it could Mm -hmm. have been this, you know, not always crystal clear. It's not. And for me, it was gradual. So I felt Mm -hmm. like our relationship was actually really wonderful for 
I'm going to say seven, eight, somewhere in their years. I had mm -hmm. a friend that said, oh, the secret is to a long marriage is getting through the seven year itch. So I remember it was somewhere around that time when we started having these quarrels and I was like, okay, well, this is a new thing. And then they became more and more regular and more and more regular. And then they were escalating and then they became physical and then they became, you know, verbally abusive. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, what has happened? And I thought, oh, well, this must be the seven year itch. I'll just stick it out and stick it out. Seven and, year itch. It out. and, you know, 13 years, in mm. 16 years in, it was obvious, but you know, wow. it was a gradual progression. And so it can happen in different ways, but the key is to look for those red flags. And thank you for putting the book out to help us recognize, because I don't even think I recognize the red flags. I was in a conversation with a friend and they were like, your husband talks to you that way. My husband doesn't <laughs> talk to me that way. And I was like, wait, this isn't normal. Like yeah. So it, yeah. it can be subtle and it can be surprising. And mm -hmm. so thank you so much, Shelly. I know you've done so much research and so much work in this space. I know that you've been through your own trauma as it relates to these exact experiences. So thank you for your willingness to come on the show today and share your story and be so vulnerable and educate us on what are the red flags and what we can do differently to avoid these types of relationships moving forward or to really yes. navigate them. And, you know, Shelly, we'd love to have you back. We honestly yeah, would love I feel to. Like I feel there's like too much more to talk about. We've unpacked so <laughs> much. On like, how did we get there? Why did we stay? But bitch, how do we like literally start healing and start yeah. shifting our identity that we no longer feel that and hold on to that space anymore and start to heal and become free. I would love for that to be our next topic yeah. as we get together. Will you come back and join us again so we can dive in there? Absolutely. I would love Fantastic. to. There's so much more to unpack. And I just want yeah. to thank you both. I love your vulnerability and just willingness to take on topics like this. So thank you. Absolutely. Awesome. Bye. Well, until next time, thank you so much. Yes, we appreciate you. Bye. shit ladies I cannot tell you how much I learned from talking to Shelly today from enjoying this conversation from having this conversation with my podcast partner Trinity I have learned things today that I didn't know about her or about myself and my former relationships so let's reflect for a moment on some of the juicy tips and messages of awareness that Shelly shared with us during this conversation. Number one, the research shows that narcissism is likely genetic and inherited in some way. It's hardwired into our personality. And what this means to you is that it's, it's difficult for a narcissist to actually change their behavior. Number two, women who are kind, empathetic, and agreeable are often drawn into these relationships and narcissists will actually intentionally prey on their partners who possess these qualities and characteristics. Three, conscientiousness and traits like loyalty and being goal-driven can sometimes keep you in this narcissistic relationship because you're in it to win it. You have committed to this relationship, you've stated so in your vows, and that can sometimes be detrimental. And four, 
cognitive dissonance can be described as the mental conflict that exists when your beliefs are not aligned with your action. And it's really part of the reason that you might be staying in this relationship. And it's your first red flag when you realize that you're experiencing cognitive dissonance to get the hell out of that relationship, girl. We love you listeners out there. We love you so much. And we hope that you are loving this podcast. We want you to know that you're not alone in this journey to finding self, to healing, and living your best life. So we would love to hear from you. Please leave us a review. Let us know what you walked away with from this episode today. And we look forward to hearing from you and talking with you again next week.